Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. This morning, we are going to be uh, continuing our series that uh, we have been conducting through the month of January, series that we've entitled Jesus and the Lost. And uh, those are terms, both Jesus and lost, that uh, perhaps we need to delve a little further into, and we're going to do that this morning uh, as we look in Luke chapter 5. So you might take your Bibles and turn with me there. As you're doing so, I might say that this is a somewhat unique passage that uh, brings us into a new form of evangelism that we'll be talking about this morning. Uh, new terms mean new things, and oftentimes both fashion and language try to catch up with cultural trends that we're in. And uh, that's no different from the day in which we live even today. Some of you remember just a year or two ago, we were touting the power tie. Remember that? The yellow tie that kind of spoke about the the times of the 80s, the fast life of the 80s where people were, were more and more power conscious and quite frankly, some people sold their their life out to power. I was reading uh, this week in the newspaper where that's being replaced as we move into the 90s with the risk tie. Uh, the risk tie is that bold and audacious multicolored tie that by wearing it, you're taking a risk. I don't have on one on this morning. I've gone a little more conservative, but uh, but uh, they say that, the, that that particular tie is out because it's uh, trying to catch up to a new cultural state of mind about the 90s where people are feeling a little more tentative and and it's going to require a little more risk. So people are wearing the the risk tie to uh, state that. Uh, Language is a lot like that. Things change and as things change we change our language to keep pace with the cultural trends and I thought I would would share with you some new future speak so to so to say that uh, so to speak that uh, are just now kind of entering our lingo. One is the uh, term DWT. DWT. Uh, that stands, or that's a, a kind of a, an acronym for an automotive-related stress condition. The abbreviation stands for driving while telephoning. <laughs> You've seen some people stressed out under DWT, haven't you? Then there's the term that I think is uh, really catching on in our uh, economy, right-sizing, right-sizing. Right-sizing is when a, a company uses that term to indicate that layoffs are about to occur. We're going to right-size our company. Then, of course, one that's still hanging around, the term dude. That's turtle slang for the human race. <laughs> then revenue enhancement positive term for taxes. Then uh, the word diced. He diced me. Uh, That's to be put down or ridiculed after Andrew Dice Clay. Palm top. We had the uh, tabletop computer and then we had the laptop computer and now we have the palm top computer. That's the new phrase. Boom car. Boom car. That's an uh, an automobile out fitted with a lethal overdose of high-powered stereo speakers. (laughs) Some of you have driven up to a stop sign and next to you, a boom car. (laughs) And you've begun to shake and move your automobile. 
How anybody survives in one of those cars, I never know. One that I particularly like is the new term channel surfers. Channel surfers. Those are TV viewers who just can't keep their hands off their remote control. <laughs> Done any channel surfing lately? Moving through the 50 or so television channels? The, the one that I'm going to introduce to you this morning, uh, though I'm not going to define it, I'm going to spend the rest of our time giving a message on it, is a new term I would like to put in your theological vocabulary. Party evangelism. Party evangelism. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning uh, in verses 27 to 32. Now, the reason I mentioned party evangelism is because some of us have all kinds of misconceptions of evangelism, sometimes too narrowly defined is that word. Oftentimes when somebody hears the word evangelism, they think of a person who is in a confrontation with another person with their Bible open, calling for repentance. And there are times where that's appropriate. But there are all kinds of evangelism that fall out of the Scriptures as you read about them. There is intellectual evangelism. Remember Paul on Mars Hill encountering the philosophers of the Greek culture? Uh, it wasn't a confrontational setting, and Paul used a whole different style uh, that was very intellectual in approach. There's testimonial evangelism. Remember the blind man who was healed by Jesus, and he, he began to tell his friends, and of course the religious leaders of that day wanted to enter into a theological discussion and to try to get him to admit who Jesus was or wasn't. And remember his comment, I don't know about all that. All I know is once I was blind, now I see. That's a good testimony, isn't it? Then there's lifestyle evangelism. Uh, Jesus uh, interacted with the woman who was caught in adultery. And uh, when he concluded his discussions with her and she was just amazed that he didn't condemn her, he simply sent her away and said, go and sin no more. And in that, he sent out an evangelist. Didn't mean that she was going to say anything to anybody. But the fact that this woman would be changed would speak volumes. In Luke chapter 5, we have party evangelism. It's a different kind of evangelism, but let's read about it. It starts in verse 27. It says, And after that, Jesus went out and noticed a tax gatherer, maybe we could say a revenue enhancer, <laughs> named Levi though his name would be changed later on as well to kind of catch up with where he was going, to Matthew. But at this point, his name was Levi. And he was sitting in the tax office, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and rose and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people who were reclining at the table with him or with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at His disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and the sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I have come to, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." That passage has all kinds of different flavors to it, and we're going to taste some of those. 
But I will tell you that the passage, as I've indicated on your kind of breaks forth into two uh, neat divisions. The first is a portrait of Matthew himself, the person. And then there is a brief account of what I've called Matthew's party. Now, for some time, Jesus had been stirring up a lot of uh, interest in Galilee and the Galilee area. And this was right around the city of Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. He had been healing people. He had been confronting and confounding people with his teaching. And we're just now catching up with Jesus as he moves through Galilee. And what has just occurred before is Jesus has healed this paralytic who had been paralyzed most of his life. And his friends desperately wanted him to get to Jesus and and they couldn't, so they crawled up on top of a roof and opened up the roof and let him down right in the middle of the service. And Jesus had healed him, and that had just occurred. And Jesus was now leaving Capernaum. He was on the main road out of town when in verse 27, as he's going out, he crosses the office of this tax gatherer and meets up with him. Now, tax collectors often were situated on the outside of town along main roads as people went in and out of the cities. And they were there for two reasons. First of all, for the convenience of the duty of a tax gatherer. You see, he was required to uh, turn in a certain percentage of the people's revenue to the Roman authorities. And the best way to do that was to sit outside the city and as people brought their commerce in and out, he would meet up with them and measure their goods and services and then charge them a, a particular sum. Probably a, a, a modern-day tax gatherer that could compare to those days was, would be one of those way stations where those 18-wheelers pull in, you know, when you're driving along on a vacation or whatever and you're crossing a state line. Uh, those trucks that are bringing commerce in and out of the main cities have to pull off and be weighed and... Sometimes they're charged extra duty and taxes for the particular loads that they carry. Well, that's what a tax gatherer did as well. And so he was situated here on the outside of town in order to do that. But tax gatherers were notorious as well because tax gatherers knew what they needed to pay the Roman government, but they would take their scales and change their scales and change their measurements and weights and bribe and extort and all those kind of things in order to gather a sum way above what they owed the Roman authorities. The Roman government knew that, but they really didn't care. As long as they got what they wanted, the tax gatherers could squeeze out of the people what they wanted, and they did. And so tax gatherers were incredibly rich people. So this was a very rich man. But he became rich by sacrificing his name and reputation, just like a lot of people in the 80s did. Chasing the almighty denarius in these days, dollar and hours. They gave up everything in order to have a particular power, money. And that's what he had done. So Matthew was not unlike a lot of us today. But there was a second reason why his office was located on the outskirts of town. And that is because tax gatherers were hated because of their bribery and their extortion and their fraud. And so being isolated on the outside of town was a very practical and expedient thing to do because if you lived in town, that meant that you had to suffer the daily jeers and curses and hard looks 
and disgraces. And who wanted to put himself in that kind of situation? So he was out there to get away from people. In Israel, tax gatherers were classed with murderers and robbers as a people. That's where people looked at them as a station in life. They were social misfits, so to speak. They were officially barred from attending the synagogues all throughout Palestine. They were excommunicated by the religious authority. So not only did they lose their name, they lost their religion. And the only friends a tax gatherer could muster up were people who were considered misfits as well. Because nobody else would have them. So if you and I were to take out a, a coloring book and we were to color a portrait of Matthew, the color crayons that we would have to pick up would be the color crayons of rich and lonely and lost and hated. If you had those four color crayons, you could paint a pretty good picture of this man. Well, Jesus is on his way out of town, and as he crosses through this road, he stops at this tax office, and he looks in, and if you'll uh, look at verse 27, it says that he noticed this tax gatherer named Levi. Now, don't let that word notice get by you. It's a mystical word, and it really unlocks all the events that take place in verse 27 and 28. It doesn't mean that, that they just eyed one another. It doesn't mean that this is the first time they saw one another. With all that Jesus was doing up in Galilee, I think it's a good bet that Matthew had heard of Jesus, probably even maybe seen Him in action at certain places in the city of Capernaum. So this is, was not their first encounter, and yet it says here that he noticed Levi. And something very powerful took place. To kind of get a little more feel of how loaded that word is, be good to go to a dictionary. In, in the Greek language, you go to a, a lexicon. That's an English dictionary in Greek. And if you open it up and you read a formal definition of this Greek word theomai, which is translated here, noticed, it's defined this way. To perceive with physical eyes, but in such a way that a supernatural impression is gained. A second definition, a perception that is wholly supersensual. Boy, that goes well beyond just glancing at somebody. And so when Jesus dropped by and glanced over and noticed Levi, and Levi looked up and noticed Jesus, in that connection, some tremendous chemistry took place. Not unlike when a boy meets girl. You know, when, uh, when I was growing up and I was still fairly young man, I remember that there were all kinds of beautiful young ladies in our high school. And uh, it was easy to be familiar with them and to see them and to glance at them occasionally. But in that sea of faces, one particular evening, I looked out and there were these two big brown eyes that I locked into that I noticed, and something super sensual took place. And I perceived something that was incredibly deep 
though I was immature and didn't really know what to expect or what that meant or where it was going, but I perceived in me that chemistry called love. And yet I hardly even knew the person. But even in that moment, I felt like I love her. And I didn't go up to Sherrod at that moment and say, uh, I need a data check on you. Um, <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to ask for personal references, and I didn't call anybody. Didn't know what kind of assets she might have. But, but it really is a mystical moment, isn't it? And there was something in me that felt like here is somebody that goes far beyond even my blood relatives. Somebody I want to give my life to. And yet we hadn't even started. I didn't know what it was going to mean. Well, I think that Levi here had been familiar with Jesus and it had struck a spark. And at this moment, this spark turns into a flame. And in this moment, when he looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at him, suddenly Jesus goes past just Levi's eyes. He peers all the way into his soul. And he sees somebody who's lost and lonely, but he also sees in that mystical moment someone who is yearning and willing. And Jesus, I mean, Matthew looks back at Jesus and he just doesn't see a man anymore. But his perception goes far deeper and in this moment, he sees the Savior of his lonely life. They connected. They noticed one another. So it wasn't very hard when Jesus says to Levi here, follow me. He didn't know what it meant. He hadn't checked out any references. But he just believed, this is the person I want to give my life to. And he did. Notice in verse 28, it goes on and it says, and he left everything behind it was only natural, maybe I should say now supernatural, it was only supernatural that he should leave everything and follow Jesus. By the way, that is how everyone is truly converted into the kingdom of God. They leave everything behind. Not necessarily literally like he, he did. But, but this is a story to help us understand a much deeper spiritual truth. And that is... To be converted, truly converted, and to be a true son or daughter of God, you've got to let the old life go. And if you, if you try to be converted and hang on to certain facets of the old life, it doesn't create a new birth. It just creates a mess. You know, I was at the uh, births of all my children. And I remember when we had our Third son, our third child, Garrett. It was our first son. And I filmed a lot of the momentous events in there. And on this particular occasion, uh, Dr. Quay, who was once over at Cornerstone, was delivering Garrett. And I was trying to get the, the best moments of that event. And he wanted me to participate, but I had this huge camera on my shoulder. And so you could see Dr. Quay, and suddenly he holds up Garrett, and the umbilical cord is still attached to him. And, and Dr. Quay says to me, he says, Come, cut cord. And, and so you see the baby, and then you, you see the camera kind of moving, and these scissors come out and clamp onto that cord in that moment. Sometime I'll have to show you those movies. <laughs> They're really pretty good. I, 
We have instant replay and everything on there. But can you imagine if this could happen? And of course it can't, I'm being facetious. But what if in that moment, my son could speak and suddenly he said, don't cut that cord. There's a lot of life that flows through that cord. And I've become used to it. And, and yeah, I want to come out and I want to experience a new life, but I don't want to let go. And by the way, can you bring that birth sack along too? You know, that feels real comfortable. See, that wouldn't be a new birth. That'd be a mess. Literally, it'd be a mess. <laughs> and if you want to see my movies, you just know just how much of a mess it would be. But you know, I know a lot of people who've tried to be birthed that way. They can feel the draw to Christ. They can feel it, and it's powerful. But in that moment, they also know another truth, that it's all or nothing. And every time you try to say, let me just bring a part, it's going to corrupt the whole process. You got to leave everything behind. And that's exactly what Levi here did. And what a difference he made in the world later on. And he followed, it says, Jesus. And that brings us, that's the portrait, both his condition and his, and his conversion. But now we come to the, his party, Matthew's party. And we are introduced to party evangelism. Notice it says in verse 29, it says, And Levi gave a big reception for him, that is Jesus, in his house. Not Jesus' house, Levi's house. And there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people. And boy, other people is an understatement, by the way. <laughs> Later on, we are told that they're not just people, they're sinners. And if you know anything about who a tax gatherer had to associate with, you can begin to kind of spell out who some of these people were. They were the local town swindler. That was a friend of the tax gatherer. There were the prostitutes, the loose, immoral men and women. Those were great friends with tax gatherers. Robbers, extortionists, gamblers, fornicators, adulterers, outcasts. That's who made up this incredible party. And you know what? Jesus went to it. That's incredible too. So there he is. And you know, it's kind of an odd mixture, kind of like odd couples here. Disciples went there too. And you can only kind of get a feel for what it must have looked like in the Jerusalem News Society page on Sunday. You know, here's Jesus kind of standing there with a smile on his face, looking totally comfortable. And, and next to him were, you know, these two guys who had terrible reputations. And, and in the background, because some of those guys probably got a lot of hand at the party, there's probably a guy with a toga pulled over his head. And another guy with a big bottle in his hand, looking half snockered. But, but Jesus looks real comfortable here. And then there's this another snapshot, and he's standing in, in between these two prostitutes. Maybe another with a guy who has left two or three women and abused them and left them in poverty as he moved from house to house with a new marriage with no responsibility. And yet there he was. Looked odd. Have you ever been to a party like that? A number of years ago, I was called one night and it was kind of an emergency and I was asked to come over by a family to meet with their daughter who didn't live with them, just to meet with the daughter. And I did and, and we talked and, 
she had gone through a number of relationships and this particular man had abused her and left her and she had just come to the end of herself. She was worn out with life and she wanted to commit suicide. So we talked about that late into the night and, and before the morning came up, she had prayed with me to receive Christ and, and I got her with some other people to begin to, to work on those wounds in her life. But just a week later, she calls me up on the phone. She said, hey, I, I, would you come over? I want you to meet someone. Well, I don't go over to single women's houses alone, but she said it was really important. She had a friend that she wanted me to meet. So I got a, another friend of mine, and we went over to visit with her because she said it was going to be real special. And when I drove up to her house, there were all these cars out front. And we walked in, and it seemed like a, just a packed-out place. I don't know how many people were there, probably not as many as I now think it was, but it was shocking because when I walked in, it was all women. And they all had teased hair and heavy makeup and the shortest skirts you could ever imagine. And they were all her friends from the bars in Portland. And she, I walked in and everybody got quiet and she turned to me and she said, uh, this is my friend Robert and he has something he wants to share with you. <laughs> That was Juanita's party. And I didn't know I was the guest of honor. But it was a real awkward kind of thing for me because I, I didn't think you went and did things like that. I was glad I got to read this passage. That kind of encouraged me. Now, I think I probably came across a little too strong because I was a little off balance in that situation. But I did share some things with some of the girls. And about a month later, one of them, and I can remember her in particular, Kathy, came to know Christ. Well, this is Matthew's party. And it's a real interesting party. And I just want to ask some questions around uh, verse 29. Maybe some questions that would help us get a better feel for what's going on here. First question would be this. Are you surprised at how many sinful people came to this party? Uh, notice in verse 29, you might just circle the word big. It was big. And there was a great crowd of these people. Not just a few, it was packed out. Why did they come? Second question. Did they come because uh, Matthew said that it was going to be a religious gathering? I don't think so. Did they come because Matthew had told them that Jesus was going to preach a sermon? I don't think they would have come. Then why did they come? I think they came for two reasons. I think they came because they thought they were going to have fun. And secondly, they thought they were going to hear about a better way of living. I think that's why they came. You know, people in our world are very interested in a better way of living. Yes, they're having fun with certain things that they're doing, but they're also being hurt by the fun they're having. You don't have to meet very many people around Little Rock and get in too much of a conversation before the glitter begins to fall off and they begin to kind of engage you in wanting you to help them nurse some of the wounds and hurts and abuse all their fun is inflicting on their personhood. And it's the same way with you and me. When we go out and try to have the old kind of fun, it's, it's a fun for a moment, but it still hurts and it leaves scars. And by the way, those wounds and those scars grow over time 
and they become black holes that then suck us under. So I think these people were here kind of tentative, but at a place where they can maintain a safe distance in a setting that's neutral. So they don't have to be too threatened, but they can get a glimpse of whether this new way of life is worth considering or not. I think that's why they came. I think the application for the church today is that so often we have made the mistake of engaging the world only by condemning the lifestyles people lead, not by sharing our lifestyle with them. That's a whole different way of thinking of evangelism, and yet I think that's what this text is encouraging us to think about. You see, Matthew's party was all about a better way of living. That's party evangelism. Third question, how did Jesus come across in this party? Uh, did He come across as a religious figure? Maybe did He have His Old Testament under His arm? Uh, I don't think so. Did He quote Scripture at them? I don't think He did that. Well, then how did He appear to these people? I think He appeared unusually normal. That's how I think He appeared. <laughs> Just like a regular old guy. Toga had a little dirt on it, had some dirt under his fingernails. He didn't look particularly attractive. He just looked like one of us. I think he laughed with them. I think he conversed freely with them. I think at certain points in the evening, he engaged them knowingly with some of the pain that they felt, some of the deeper pain they felt. And I think when they left that party, I don't think they left the party converted. But here's what I do think they left the party with. The sense that he understood where they lived. That's party evangelism. Walking away going, boy, that guy really understands where we live. Maybe he's got answers. That's what I'm talking about when I say party evangelism. It's helping people see that you're normal and that you understand where they live because you've lived there but that you're excited about some of the things you're discovering, not because you're better than them. You've just discovered it and you want to share it. I think that's how Jesus came across. There's another question. What kind of statement did Jesus make by being there at this party? Well, I think He made a giant statement of personal acceptance of people. By being there, He said that every human being on the planet has great and unique value. He wasn't there to affirm or overlook their sin at all, but by moving towards them and engaging them rather than away from them, He was affirming the dignity of their personhood. The value of their humanity by just being with them. And it was an incredible statement. You know, I believe before anybody else will even hear you, one of the things that they're asking secretly inside is, do you accept me? And I think if the church should say anything, it should say to people, no matter what their addiction, perversion, or conviction is, that pretty much sums up all of sin, it should say, we accept the person. We love you. We care for you. We don't mind being with you. And we're here. So that makes a statement of that. We're here. So therefore, we do care and we want to associate with you. 
doesn't say anything about accepting or affirming the practice they might be involved in. But they've got to know that you accept them. And then finally, what picture was Jesus painting? I think he was painting a futuristic picture of what his church, the most unique organization on earth, would be like. Church is unlike any other organization. The church is not the Marines, you know, because the Marines are looking for a few good men, right? Church is not a sorority, because a sorority is looking for a select kind of gal who will reflect and enhance an already existing image of another group of women, as many clubs are. The church is not a country club where only a select class of people can participate. I think if you want a good definition of the church, the church is a giant, classless rehabilitation center. That's what the church is. And the only thing that gets you into the church is you've got to be mixed up, messed up, beat up, or screwed up. <laughs> and if you classify in any one of those categories, you're welcome to the rehabilitation center with a lot of other people. And by the way, I, I figured out that I at least fit three of those four categories <laughs> as I was writing them down. That's the church. Acceptance and rehabilitation. Now that's going to offend some people because they like to think of the church as much more pure than that. But what a mistake that is when we start thinking of ourselves as righteous <laughs> rather than these other more dubious qualities. Well, there were some party poopers here. Verse 30, they weren't invited to the party, but they showed up anyway. They crashed the party. The Pharisees and the scribes, and they come along and they're grumbling. And they notice the disciples and they ask the disciples, notice they ask the disciples, not Jesus, why do you eat and drink with the tax gatherers and sinners? Now I think they asked the disciples and not Jesus because I think the disciples were in social shock at this occasion. <laughs> You know what? You know where I think the disciples were? I think the disciples were all up against the wall holding a Coke. <laughs> That's where I think they were. And they weren't spread out. They were all huddled together, you know, with their mouths on the floor watching Jesus look so relaxed in the midst of this crowd. And I think when the party crashers came along and looked around, they noticed the shock that these men were in and they thought they could exploit it. So they, they want to go over and ask them a question about eating and drinking with these people because the disciples hadn't made the transition yet. They were in the old school. And you know what the old school taught? You don't go to them. It's not evangelism by association. They, 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 they got to humble themselves and crawl to us. That's evangelism by segregation. That's the way the church ought to work, or in this case, the synagogue. That's the way it ought to work. So they're understanding this little merry band and this thing, they were so off balance and out of place because they didn't want to get with the world. They wanted to get out of the world and to have no responsibility for these people or care or concern or love or anything else. They were waiting for these people to finally run out of gas and then come and humiliate themselves before them. And you know what? That'll never work. Ever. And a church may get a couple of conversions week to week, but it'll never make a major impact with that kind of focus. Well, Jesus overhears this, thankfully, 
And he fills in the answer so that his men don't make a mistake. And in verse 31, he quotes a proverb that was prevalent in those days. He says to these Pharisees, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I think that was an inside joke. The word well here means to have it all together. And that's exactly where these Pharisees thought they were. They thought they had it all together in life. Remember last week Bill Wellens talked about how people are lost. And he said people are lost in one of three ways. He said they're either lost by their own foolishness. They don't want to be lost. And by the way, lost only means that you ruin your life and don't know what to do about it. There's some people who do that foolishly. They don't mean to, they just do. There's some people who are lost by carelessness. They get hurt and wounded and dysfunctional because of others, and that steers them in wrong directions through the carelessness of others and their crowd. Some people are lost. Some people are lost because they know better, but they just choose to be lost. Well, those are the three that Bill gave. I'd like to add one other. These Pharisees and these scribes were lost by deceit, personal deceit. You see, they thought they were found. <laughs> they thought they were in the kingdom. They thought they were a part of God's chosen. And what Jesus is trying to help them understand is they've missed it. And the reason they've missed it is because they thought they were well enough to get into the kingdom. They thought they didn't need a Savior. They thought they were, were, were good enough and had done enough good rules in their religion had degenerated into just rules, most of them negative, in order to demonstrate. And they were sour. And people looked at them as sour. And that's why Matthew, when he threw his party, didn't invite them. Remember, they wouldn't even have these people in their synagogue. And I would say, we can also fall into that. You know, some young people in a good church always suffer from this particular disease. They grow up with good Christian parents who really love the Lord. They grow up in a church that really exalts the Lord. And they assume that somehow that makes them Christian. And they go out into their world and they stay away from the unholy no's, but they dabble in a lot of other ones that they can get away with. But they think by keeping these rules that somehow that automatically means I must be saved. But they're lost by deceit. How do you know you're lost by deceit? This would be a good other message, but I want to give one that comes out of the text. I think one of the ways you can know that you're religious but not found, religious but not born again, is if in your heart you don't have any passion for the lost. You don't really care about them. You don't have any concern about them. You think of yourself in a superior way as if you're better than the rest of humanity. And look how good I am. Glad I'm not like them. And there's nary a thought about what those people are going through. You see them and you compare yourself with them. You ridicule them for their foolishness. Sometimes you criticize them because in their foolishness they hurt you and so you lambast them. But there's not a thought to help them. If there's no spark, no movement within to reach out, it may mean that you're religious, but you're not Christian. You see, Matthew, when he left everything behind and followed Christ, the first thing that happened to him was that he wanted to tell some other people. That showed that he was 
saved, different, reborn. And so he threw a party for his friends to meet the same Savior that he had met. You know, I believe that as we move into the 90s with a pluralistic society before us that is ever skeptical of the evangelical community and wondering what all these cars are along the street and how they never really touch those people in real life and wonder what's going on in here. I believe that party evangelism is future speak. I believe that party evangelism is one of the unique ways of reaching our community. Which brings us, by the way, to our party. It's not just like Matthew's party, but this is our party that we're about to throw in January. And let me just give you some similarities that I think grow out of this party with Matthew's party as I finish. First of all, I think that uh, this party that we're about to embark on gives people a soft touch around the life of Christ at a safe distance on a neutral site. That sound familiar? That's exactly what's going on here in verse 29. See, party evangelism is not confrontive evangelism where people extol the claims of Christ, though I don't have any problem with that. But what party evangelism does is it breaks the spiritual ice. And, and we are desperate in our community to do that where people look at us as normal. And let them see that, hey, we're not superior because we're not. We're just saying we're trying to learn how to live better and maybe they need to think about this because it's helped us who are, who are just like them. Secondly, it allows people to join in on our fun for, in, for once are fun, and to see what's positive about the Christian life. As I mentioned, just like the Pharisees, I think so much of Christianity comes across in an adversarial context. Now, there's times that the church needs to stand up and confront its community about certain things. But unfortunately, I think that's all that the community hears from the church. It's what they're doing wrong. That would make far more sense as if it was in a context of balanced of balance where the community had joined in on some of what I think is much greater in the church, and that's some of its life, some of its fun, some of the positive of the Christian life. And by the way, real Christianity is more for something than against something. That's what makes it exciting. And yet the, church, the, the community only gets a sliver of our life. Thirdly, I think party evangelism makes some wonderful statements about what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And what it's all about is acceptance, care, love, and rehabilitation, as I mentioned. And I think that uh, people need to know that from us first before anything else. And then finally, party evangelism says what the church is not. What it's not. It is not a group of segregated, hypocritical, arrogant, self-righteous, aloof, and self-deceived people. That is not this church, and I know that and you know that. Remember, the tax gatherers weren't allowed into the synagogue. And who were the promoters of that? The religious leaders. And when I read that, I thought to myself, I wonder how many people out in the community, because of their lifestyles, would say secretly to themselves, though they're hurting inside, I could never go to that church because I'm not good enough. They wouldn't let me in. They might embarrass me. 
<laughs> and I almost want to fall on the floor and laugh. Because I want to say, man, I'm as messed up as you are. Welcome. But they don't see that. They see good-looking people and dress nice and act nicer than them. So therefore, they're not welcome. We've got to change that. And I think to dispel that myth, we've got to go out, touch them. I hope that uh, tonight you will come because I think tonight between 7 and 8 is a helpful way of just preparing for the party. And it's not us, it's us preparing for the party. And in doing that, what we're going to do is think about the forum that's coming up and we're going to work on things together for just one hour, no more, so that we can leave there making sure that no one is forgotten or left out on our invitation list. You know, I talked about future speak, and, I, and all through this I've gone between Matthew and Levi. His name was Levi here, and most people, because he had sold his soul to money, thought of him as what's wrong with society. What's interesting is in the very next chapter, after Jesus had gathered a host of disciples around him, he chose 12 in chapter 6. And when he went to choose those 12, he chose Levi as one of the twelve. But he changed his name to Matthew, which means gift of God. A gift from God to this planet, which is what Matthew became. You know, tonight, we're preparing to party. So let's party. And let's pray. Father, thank You for this time of just um, rethinking what we're all about what You've called us to and where life is. Thank You that You never allow Your church to think more highly of itself than it ought to think. And thank You that You have encouraged us only so we can encourage others and thus open the doors for many to know that it's safe to seek You. Lord, how we thank You for what You've done in our lives because we're not sorry that we followed You. My Word, what a difference You have made. How different we are with different perspectives. And I, for one, would never go back to what was in the past. But Lord, others need to hear that, not from on high, but side by side, with a good time. And we pray that You would help us to do that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.